Okay, well, um, this is kind of a continuation of, of what Jeff started. Well, it's, it's a, more broadly, it's a continuation of what he's been doing on um, basic theology uh, of the faith, uh, but it's a continuation of what he really started last week. Um, the, the, the chapter he asked me to continue with tonight is called Conceptions of Salvation. It's about, you know, that most crucial of doctrines, right? I mean, if you, when you're asked to sum up the gospel in one verse, what's the first one that comes to mind for everybody? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation, the focus of what Christ did, the focus um, of the Bible, really, and so it's a, it's an important conception, um, and it's been thought of in different ways through church history. Um, and Jeff devoted last week really totally to um, to one particularly dangerous one, uh, you know, the, what's called prosperity theology, and that one's so dangerous because it's so subtle, it's so um, Appealing if you're not thinking about it carefully because it tells you, you know, God always wants you to be wealthy. God always wants you to be healthy. Um, but it's dangerous as we talked about last week. And, and it, and the reason I think he, he wanted to devote a whole week to that one is it's the main, honestly, that's the main thing you see preached on most of, of, of what's called Christian television. Not exclusive, but on just about any Christian station you go to, you'll probably see a series of pastors uh, teaching that. Uh, but there are other things people have thought about salvation, other um, errors that have been made in thinking about salvation, and it's important to understand these and understand uh, that people believe these and, and why they believe them and, and what is in error about those if we're going to be of use to people, right? If we're going to point them to the true gospel, to Christ. And so we're going to look at some of those uh, tonight, as many as we can get through, and I'm sorry, maybe you'll have your hand out for these in in, uh, uh, in just a minute, but one of the big ones that is prevalent in a lot of the world today uh, is something called liberation theology, and there are a lot of, there are actually a lot of variants on this, but broadly speaking, the basic emphasis of liberation theology is that the real problem, the basic problem that society has is oppression and exploitation of the powerless classes, the poor, by the powerful. And so salvation is is um, seen as deliverance or liberation uh, from that oppression. And um, there are a number of scriptures um, that, that exponents of this belief um, use that they sort of focus on that are, are sort of their, their favorites or targets. One of those is Psalm 146, uh, verse 9. And I just jotted down a few examples. There's a lot of them you can think of. Uh, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. What is, biblically speaking, especially in the prophets, people like Amos, what's sort of the, the, um, the, um, I guess, subject case that sort of encapsulates where God begins justice with? What kind of people? They're mentioned in this verse right here. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. It's you know when 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 the prophets talk about justice, they talk about doing justice to what two particular groups of people? Well, the um, look there in in that uh, that verse, the Lord watches over the sojourners; He upholds the widow and the fatherless. You see that mentioned again and again and again in the prophets. Yeah, do justice to widows and orphans. Why those two particular? kinds of people. Yeah. In in their society, those were two completely defenseless groups of people, right? It's, uh, uh, you know, it was a very patriarchal society and if a woman lost her husband, there weren't a lot of legitimate ways for her to provide a living for herself. Um, so, um, a lot of times, widows were at the mercy of... Um, the the love the charity of the community around them same thing for orphans people you know children defenseless you know without um, without parents to to help them and to provide for them and so uh, you know the Bible when, when when God talks about justice he talks about starting with these people who are least able to defend themselves um, and so you can see why people who are focusing on the idea that salvation is liberation from oppression, they would focus on that kind of scriptures, right? If we're talking about our society today, who might be some other classes of people who are the least able to defend themselves that might serve as a metaphor in our society for where justice begins? The unborn is a big one, right? Yeah, that's never been true in the world before modern times, has it, when the unborn were actually in danger of being attacked in the womb, but they certainly are the least able to defend themselves of any group. Um, and so, yeah, if if you know if if God were inspiring that the scripture today, that might be might very well be one of the one of the metaphorical classes he would use is is the unborn. How, by the way, are we doing in? If, if the standard is defending the weak and, and those least able to defend themselves, how are we doing as a society? Not so great. Yeah, not so great. And uh, there are a number of other passages. Um, I won't read all of these. Zechariah 7.10. Um, a, a big passage of Scripture. Can you imagine what might be a big emphasis, a big section of Scripture that people who are involved in liberation theology would tend to look at? What big event in Israel's history? Yeah, exactly. The Exodus. That's a huge focus. They focus on that all the time. And they, they use these scriptures to say, see, this is really what the Bible's about. And this is what salvation is about. It's about ending oppression. Um, so they don't, people who are exponents of liberation theology don't really think of salvation primarily as life after death. They, the Bible, they say, concerns itself much more with achieving the kingdom of God right now in the present age. And eternal life is kind of placed into the context of a new social order uh, and consists not so much of being plucked out of history as being part of the culmination of history. And so the idea that they have is you seek to bring about that their definition of salvation, that liberation, by any means necessary to do that. Um, 
liberation theology is very closely tied in most of the countries. Anybody know where liberation theology is so prominent in the world? Latin America is a big, big place that is very prominent. You have a lot of, um, you know, you've had a lot of governments down there that were run by, in many cases, you know, petty dictators and a lot of, a lot of that stuff going on. And so it's big, uh, it's really big there. But you can see examples of it even in our history in this country. Um, can you think of things that, uh, if they're not directly called liberation theology, are much along the same lines as that, that we've had? Groups who sort of espouse those same kind of things. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of long. I don't know if we'll make it through all these or not, but we'll we'll give it a try. <laughs> Think of groups in the, um, like when um, the civil rights movement was going on. Black Panthers are a kind of an example of that, right? Where it's about it's about power and any means necessary. Um, what are some? Of, yeah, yeah. What are some of the problems with that idea, with that kind of emphasis and that idea of salvation? It puts the emphasis on society, doesn't it? And making society better and making society perfect. Is salvation achieved through human society? That's not, is it? And this also ignores the very real need of the individuals. How is, you know, the whole, the whole thing in the Bible, right, is that, that, that we're sinful, but God has acted on our behalf. And by accepting his salvation and by covenanting with him, he changes our hearts and we get better. And that's the means that things get better too, right? That's the only hope really for the world. So what hope is there if you ignore the salvation of individuals and you say it's all about society? That's really doomed to failure, isn't it? That's never going to be able to succeed. Because the, the the Bible, as we understand it, says no. The problem really is the human heart, each human heart, and you can't. It doesn't matter how much you do to society to revolutionize it, to change it. If you don't address, if each human doesn't address their sin with God, there's not going to be any change that works. Sin nature is still going to be what's dominant and what's prevalent, and so it's a it's a lie that leads us away from what can really. Changes, right? And uh, it promises change in in uh, in culture, but that ultimately just can't work uh, apart from apart from Christ's transforming power. Another thing that has taken uh, hold in in parts of the Christian church is existential theology. We're at the bottom of the first page there, since you got your your handouts now. Um, and this says that the, the the goal of human existence, the aim of it all, is what's called authentic existence which they define as being what we're meant to be, fulfilling the, the destiny that we're supposed to have, living up to the potential that we have as human beings. 
And the opposite of that, inauthenticity, is, is defined as a failure to exercise your ability to make choices and to act freely and um, along with that, an unwillingness to accept the responsibility for your actions. So in, in their thinking, in the thinking of, of uh, existential theology, um, human, human beings are driven by two main tendencies. Self-orientation, that's where... You know, our chief goal is to fulfill our desires, you know, for happiness, for security, um, to be useful, and a desire for profit. And it, this this uh, theology holds that we are selfish, we're presumptuous, we tend to deny God, or we deny that God has a right to have authority over us, and we tend to believe we can gain security by our own efforts. Now, do you see anything in there that's accurate? Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty accurate picture of human nature, isn't it? We are, in fact, selfish and self-centered. We do tend to deny God as as the doer of of what He's actually done. Paul tells us that, right, in Romans, uh, that you know God reveals Himself through His creation, but people ignore it; they don't credit Him with it, and in in refusing the truth, their minds become darkened and senseless, and they fall for all kinds of things. So there is some, you know, there you can see the kinds of scriptures uh, that people who who um, espouse this would focus on, and you can see in all of these. That's the thing. You can see where you have an idea of where they would focus in scripture, and the sorts of things they would see, and you see that there's some some kernel of truth there. Uh, the, the the problem comes in later because their their um, conception of the nature of salvation is. That what God and the gospel call us to do is to be true to our true selves, our, to fulfill our, our true destinies. Uh, the word of God, they claim, calls man away from selfishness and away from his illusions of security. So salvation, in, in their conception, is not an alteration of the substance of the soul, what we call regeneration. It's instead turning to the true nature of what we are and what we ought to be. It's not um, that declaration that's necessary. You know, part of salvation is a legalistic declaration, right? We are sinners and we need to be declared not guilty, even though we haven't earned that. That's why we appropriate that from Christ, right? They say, no, that's just forensic. That's, you know, just a declaration. That's not what it's about, they say. Um, They say that... It's about uh, turning to uh, to our true nature and our true potential as people. Um, so that's what it's about, rather than um, rather than a fundamental alteration of our nature. It's about what they call um, existence, and, and that term you know, coming from uh, I guess from from German, but it, it's it's about changing our outlook on life. What is the fundamental problem with this? In relation to salvation, as it as it really exists, yeah. And if we're true to our true natures, what do we end up with? Do we end up angelic? <laughs> no. What's our true nature? Sinful. Yeah. And that's something that that is so often uh, missed by people who want to alter. Um, alter the, the, the true theology of salvation. 
Yeah, our true nature, the Bible tells us, the Bible doesn't pull any punches, is sinful, right? Again, you could go back to Romans. Paul, you know, quoting all the Old Testament scriptures, says there's not any righteous, no, not one. There's not one who seeks after God. Um, can't we really see that when we look at ourselves? You know, when you're when you're faced with something, whatever it may be, um, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic. Where does your heart turn first? <laughs> does it does it does it turn to uh, you know that fellow must be under a lot of stress. He could use a little compassion from me, and and uh, uh, you know, is that where your heart turns first, <laughs> or does it, yeah, or does it turn to hoping there's a cop around the corner who's you know who's going to get him? Our hearts turn first to self, don't they? They really do. Scripture's true when it says that, and they turn first to to our lower baser impulses to sin and to self to the selfish. And that's a truth of Scripture that's ignored here. And if you say, you know, turning to your true selves, your true nature, as though our true selves are angelic, there's a lot of problems with that, aren't there? Uh, it gets into, you know, what was one of the big problems with prosperity theology, blurs the lines between us and God, right? If you're talking about us having a truly angelic nature, we just need to access, you're blurring the lines between us and God. God is the one with the perfect nature, not us. We're the ones with the sinful nature that needs correcting. Secular theology, believe it or not, has crept into a lot of theologians that call themselves Christian. Um, the emphasis is that at one time people needed God to explain things. You know, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know about you know the nature of the of the universe and and how planets orbit, you know, stars and and how the laws of physics work, and all this stuff. They needed God to explain things. And this primitive grasping, they would call it, has been replaced now in large measure by the achievements of science, which has helped us understand how things really work. And so the, the judgment of, um, of secular theology is that we now live in a post-Christian era. And so they say, well, the church can have two res- possible responses to this. They can deny it, they can fight against it, they can see Christianity and secularism as completely opposed, uh, alternatives to one another that they have to fight, or the other one they say, and this is the one that's embraced by the, uh, by the secular theologians, is to regard secularism not as a competitor of Christianity, but as the fu- full maturing expression of Christian faith. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's pretty, pretty famous, right? He died... He, he was, you know, during the World War II era, he was out of Germany, uh, went back to Germany because he said, I need to, you know, be there with my people who are suffering. Ended up dying in a concentration camp. Um, a lot of uh, actions he took um, that are, you know, were very um, heroic and giving, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was actually a, a, an exponent of this. He, he uh, espoused something he called religionless Christianity. And the idea is that God has been active educating his highest creatures, us, to eventually be independent of him. So it's like raising children, and he raises us to be independent of him and to no longer need him. And so God has been the one at work in the process of secularization. There's a whole school of theologians that followed that called the death of God school uh, who espoused that very thing. So in this, sec- in this view of secular theology, the idea of salvation, it rejects the idea 
that salvation is, you know, removal from the world and reception of supernatural grace from God. The true meaning of salvation, they say, is realizing your own capability and being able to utilize it, becoming independent of God, coming of age, they call it, uh, affirming um, oneself, uh, getting involved in the world. Uh, and that's what they see as the goal of, uh, of uh, ultimate mature Christianity. You know, on, on a lot of these others, we talked about the, the places in Scripture these people would look to. can't think of a lot of places these people could look to. Can you? <laughs> they basically don't see a lot of value in Scripture. They, again, see it as human beings grasping for God, but it's outdated now. Uh, I'm not sure what connection they, they think they have, really. Um, with Christianity, uh, but the, the the problems of this one are obvious. I mean, what are what are, what are the dangers of this um, for true salvation? Yeah, it's it's completely contrary to the Word of God. If God is raising us to you know no longer need Him. Yeah, that's diametrically the opposite of what the Bible tells us, right? It says you're profoundly in need of me. You're utterly lost. You have no righteousness of your own. You're, you're, you're destined for hell and there's nothing you can do about it yourself. You're completely in need of God, not, you know, maturing to a point where you no longer need Him. So it's a complete rejection, uh, of the gospel. Uh, and then on the next page there, this, this is, uh, Obviously, this is a big one today. The, the biggest single group that, uh, you know, name the name Christian is, is the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and um, looking at contemporary Catholic theology is, is complicated a bit by the fact that in the past, Catholic theology was much more uniform and dogmatic. You know, there, were, there was the, the decrees of standard doctrine and pretty much nobody said anything out loud. Uh, against it. Uh, that has changed somewhat in modern times. Uh, official doctrines still there, but there are these other things that are, are, are out there and allowed to be out there. Um, the documents of Vatican II, um, you know, changed a, a lot of things. Individual Catholic scholars publish things that sometimes are in contradiction to Catholic doctrine. So you have to consider um, a lot of that in light of, of what the, the Catholic Church's official positions are. But the emphasis of Catholicism um, has, has always been that uh, the church is the only channel uh, for the grace of God. And um, can you think of a particular scripture, a particular thing that Jesus said that they draw on for that? You probably know that. Said it to Peter. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I will give you the keys, right? What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. What you bind on earth is bind in heaven. Um, Catholics see this as the foundation of the papacy. That's where P- Peter is made the first pope. They trace uh, a line of popes from him right to the, the current pope. Uh, and the idea is that the grace of God is transmitted through the sacraments of the church. Now, whereas we have the Lord's Supper, and it's, it is a symbol, right, to remind us of what Christ did for us, and a testimony to the world as well. Same with baptism, right? Does baptism save? Is there anything about it that saves? No, it, it's, it's, a, it's a witness that Christ asked us to, uh, to do, 
um, to the world to show what the salvation that He's done in us, but we don't see the act of baptism as actually saving us. We don't see the act of the taking the communion as being anything that actually imparts God's saving grace to us. That's not true in the Catholic Church. The reason they're called sacraments in the Catholic Church is because these acts, baptism, Lord's Supper being two of those, communion, uh, they would call it, not, not Lord's Supper, actually impart grace to the people taking them. And the church decides who gets them and who doesn't and has a responsibility to do that. And the church has the ability to kick you out of salvation. It's called excommunication. If you violate the way they see it, the, violate the, the principles of the church, they can excommunicate you and you're, you know, you've been bound on earth, you're bound in heaven, right? You're, you're out. You've, you've lost your salvation. So the church is the dis- actual dispenser of grace through its agencies. Um, and so in their view, you know, the, the, the communion is not just a symbol. It actually, in, in the Catholic doctrine, when you take the bread of communion, it becomes, literally becomes through a miracle, the body of Christ in you. When you take the, the wine, it becomes the blood of Christ. The wine can't be left over. The, the elements of the communion can't be left over and disposed of or thrown away or whatever. Uh, what, what's not used by the participants in the church has to be consumed by the priest uh, because it's you know it's it's a miracle it's it's something holy that's going on and so um, you know it's 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 a very different understanding of the the way that grace is dispensed and the way that salvation is dispensed. Um, they have modified their stance some in modern times. The Vatican Council adopted a position. The traditional position of the Catholic Church is, you know, right from the split, right, with Martin Luther. Luther was trying to reform the church, didn't necessarily want to split with him, but he had fundamental disagreements with him on things like this, on the nature of salvation, on the, you know, they, because the church was the dispenser of grace, they did things like sell indulgences, you know, you can buy a good Catholics, uh, you know, good works to sort of, uh, you know, Count on your account, that kind of thing, uh, and he opposed this, and he was excommunicated uh, by the Catholic Church. Uh, and the Vatican, the, the Vatican held for a long time that if you're not in the Catholic Church, you just are simply lost. You know, there, there's no salvation outside the official Catholic Church. It's been modified somewhat in in, in Vatican II. Um, they actually held that there are some of the people of God who don't have direct involvement with the Catholic Church. They refer, for example, to us, to Protestants, uh, as our separated brethren. Um, they feel that the Orthodox churches, you know, like Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, are closer than, than Protestants are. Um, but um, they, they now hold, interestingly enough, that there are uh, Catholics who are, you know, they, they hold really sort of three groups that have some access to God's grace. Catholics, of course, who are incorporated in the church. Non-Catholic Christians who are linked to the church. Uh, they're not as secure in salvation and with God in Catholics' eyes as people who are part of the official Roman church are. But they're not completely separated from God either. And then they even hold, and this is really interesting, that there are some non-Christians who are related to the church. or They, they, term, they use the term anonymous Christians. And the fact that, that these anonymous Christians are outside of the visible church or any sort of Christian church 
doesn't mean that they're completely apart from the grace of God. So it's a very interesting turn in, in what they believe. But the nature of salvation in Catholic theology really merges what Protestants, and if we have time, I don't know if we'll make it to it or not, covering evangelical theology. It's the last one on your sheet there. But they really merge what um, most Protestant denominations would call justification and sanctification into a single thing called sanctifying grace. And the idea in the Catholic version of salvation, and this is where the, the, the I guess the rub, um, beginning with Luther and, 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 um, and continuing on, comes. They believe that what happens is that Christ, we believe that Christ's grace uh, saves us, right? That it's not through any works that we've done, that we're saved simply by the grace of God through Christ. And God also performs a transforming work on our hearts and then we want to serve him. And we do good works that have been prepared by God beforehand. But that's the result of salvation. It doesn't lead to salvation. The Catholic view is actually that what Christ's grace does is it comes in to a person and enables that person to live in such a way that they earn or merit salvation. They view it as impossible apart from Christ, but the idea is that Christ's grace comes in and then you do good things so as to merit salvation. Um, what problems can you see with that idea? It's ultimately a works theology, isn't it? Yeah, that's all. Yeah, that's, a, that's one of Yeah, I mentioned that there are now, you know, now there are views that I guess are being allowed to be said and tolerated that aren't an official part of Catholic doctrine. But yeah, Mary, let's talk about that for a second. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. What is that doctrine? Okay, that's what... Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, a lot of people who don't aren't as familiar with Catholic theology, or maybe they've been to you know Protestant church, so they know some you know about what the doctrines are. They'd say the Immaculate Conception—that's where Jesus was conceived without sin. Actually, the Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is Mary's conception without sin. That at the moment of her conception, just as you said, God supernaturally prevented original sin from coming to her. And so Mary, and their reasoning is, it doesn't come as far as I can see from any, I, I don't know where you would draw that from the Bible, but their reasoning is, Christ couldn't have been born to a vessel that was a sinner that needed his salvation. Had to be born to a perfect vessel. And so, in their conception, Mary is the one human who didn't need Christ's salvation. Uh, and there is a movement, and I, this might have been what you were alluding to, uh, among certain groups of Catholics, to you know, Catholics of course pray, pray to a lot of saints, but they pray to Mary in particular, right, right next to Christ. There's a movement in the Catholic Church to have Mary declared co-redemptrix with Christ, co-redeemer. Uh, so, with that in mind, what what uh, what dangers do you see in in this in in terms of real versus real salvation? Well, you don't have 
I guess that's true in a way. You have an, are you thinking? Are you saying an addition to the Trinity or that that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's. Yeah. It's really adding to the yeah. It's 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 adding something to the gospel message that isn't there, isn't it? Um, and it's you know declaring a, a human sinless. It seems to me, I, a lot of the elements of Catholic theology seem to me it's almost as though they took a certain idea and just thought about that in isolation in a vacuum, and you know not thinking about other scripture or anything else, and thought, what's the logical end of this? And you end up with a doctrine that's actually far removed from scripture. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, the Bible, uh, could we agree, you know, there's a term in, in Protestant theology called progressive revelation, that God has revealed himself progressively over time to people, and we see that happening in the Bible. But does progressive re- revelation mean that God has changed over time? No, it doesn't. It means that his revelation has progressed. And we see that, right? I mean, you know, if you ask the question, why didn't Christ come as soon as Adam sinned? Why, why wait? And the answer scripture gives is, at the right time, Christ came, right? So at the, at the time it was supposed to, supposed to happen. Um, but we understand the unity of the entire Bible, right? Not, not that there's a, a different God in the Old Testament than the New Testament. For that reason, one would think that sound Christian theology would have a very real link with Old Testament theology, right? What you see is that Protestant theology is much more closely linked with um, Old Testament Jewish theology than Catholic theology is. I'll give you an example. Um, infants. Because the Catholic Church has the view of sacraments, that baptism actually, that's where the grace that saves you comes in. If a child dies not having been baptized... Anybody know what the fate of that child is in Catholic doctrine? Yeah, lost. Uh, what what do we say in 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 Protestant belief? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we also talk about uh, an age of uh, age of accountability, right? When it, because that's why you have God. Yeah. They're going to take it for me. Okay. Yeah, but we have the idea, right? You don't baptize infants because infants don't have the ability to have accepted Christ. You baptize people who have reached an age where they understand, you know, they've come to understand the law of God. They understand that they're sinners and they need Christ's salvation. You understand, you baptize people who actually understand, who have heard the Spirit's tug on them and accepted that and accepted salvation. That is very much the Old Testament Jewish belief. What does every Jewish child go through at about the age of 13? Bar mitzvah or bar mitzvah if it's a girl. Literally translated, that means son of the law or daughter of the law because they're viewed, at the, it's an age where they're viewed to be of of responsible mind. They now understand, and so you're responsible to the law. You're a son of the law. You're now responsible. Jewish 
thinking would not hold that a child that died was condemned. They would hold that a child that died was accepted because they hadn't reached that age of accountability. So you see the Protestant, our view, is much more tied with the Old Testament biblical view than is than is the Catholic view. And I think you see that divorce a lot of times between um, between some Catholic doctrines and, and the, the Old Testament roots of our faith. But yet, yeah, it ultimately, and somebody mentioned works, you mentioned works, it, it ultimately is, is a works theology. In fact, every religion I'm familiar with outside of true biblical Christianity is in one way or another a works theology. Whether it's Buddha telling you you have to rid yourself of your passions, whether it's you know um, Islam telling you you have to uh, follow the pillars of Islam and God weighs you in the balances whether you're good or, or bad outweighs themselves and that determines whether you're saved. It's all works. It's all things you have to do to be saved except for true biblical Christianity which says there's nothing you can do. What are the what works must I do to be saved? The work singular Christ replies is believe on the Son, right? Um, and so that that's true biblical Christianity. And so that, that leads us to that last section here, the differences in evangelical uh, theology, what we believe. Uh, traditional evangelical position on salvation is tied very closely to our understanding of the human predicament. Uh, the relationship between each human and God is the primary one. And when that's not right, nothing else in life is, right? It affects all other dimensions of life as well. Uh, scriptures are understood by, by evangelicals to indicate that there are two major aspects of the human problem of sin. Sin is our big problem, right? And there's, there's two main aspects of it. First, sin's a broken relationship with God. Um, each, you know, the human being has failed to to uh, fulfill the divine law, the divine expectations to meet God's perfect standards of righteousness, whether by transgressing the law or by failing to do what they ought to do, uh, what's positively commanded. And deviation from the law results in guilt. It results in liability to punishment. Uh, and the second part of that is the, the very, it, it's not just that you know sin makes us guilty, it corrupts our nature. And we have a sin nature, right? We have original, we, we, you know, we're each born with that, you know, that stain of original sin. We each have a, a, the nature that Paul talks about that our hearts turn first to self and sin. And that's a big problem, right? And, and, uh, that's the, the nature of our problem as, as we as un- evangelicals understand it. So our hearts incline to evil. There's a propensity for sin. And the re- rupture in our relationship with God results in disturbance in, you know, Really, the whole rest of creation doesn't it? in our relationships with all other people, uh, and even beyond that, beyond just our personal, you know, we have to deal with our sin, each of us with God, right? But sin has a collective impact, doesn't it, on us as well? Uh, it, the whole structure of society is corrupted. Injustice and hardship results, and that, you know, again, this flies in the face of so many of these others we looked at. That's a fundamental problem with society. That's a fundamental problem with the idea that, you know, you can get society right and then everybody will behave right and it'll be a, a perfect idyllic age, Star Trek philosophy or whatever, you know, that, that you we reach the, when we get the, the federation in place, you know, we'll have an ideal government and everybody will be, will be good. Um, you know, the, the idea that government's the answer is one 
we still, well, never mind. Um, yeah. <laughs> we won't go there. But anyway, you know what I'm saying. Uh, but, um, you know, that, that whole, you know, you see the problem with that whole thing. Because our, because sin has impacted us, humans, at a fundamental level, each of us, there's no hope that society can correct that. So the nature of salvation in, in, um, evangelical, um, theology is, um, you know, certain aspects of it relate to just our standing with God. For, you know, the, the first problem is we're guilty, right? And, you know, the, the image that, that is repeated throughout the New Testament is it's like a courtroom, you know, and a trial, and we're guilty, right? And so our problem is, you know, first of all, we need to be declared not guilty if we're not gonna, uh, if we're not gonna suffer the penalty of death. And so it's, it's a matter of, uh, of, of getting that declaration of being justified is the term we use in, in, uh, in evangelical theology, justification. This only happens by legal union with Christ, who's the one who did perfectly fulfill the requirements of the law. We can't do it but God credits his righteousness to us, views us in his righteousness, and we get declared righteous. But that's not the whole uh, problem. We, we have to be declared righteous, but then there's the, you know, there's the, the need for the remission of guilt. Uh, our sin destroys our intimacy with God, and that's restored by God adopting us, the terms adoption in, in evangelical theology. Uh, we're restored to favor with God. We have all the privileges of a son again, right? We're adopted into, into sonship in the kingdom. And in addition to that, there's the, the need to uh, reestablish, uh, in addition to the need to reestablish one's relationship with God, there's also the need to deal with the condition of the heart, the heart which is, which is inclined to sin. The basic change in the direction of your life, the direction of your heart, the transformation that comes from God is called regeneration, where it's not just like, you know, these other um, theologies we looked at say that, you know, we need to, you know, just access our true essence. No, we need our true essence changed. Our, our true essence is, is sinful, so we need to be regenerated, the new birth. Uh, it's an actual alteration of your, of your character. Uh, it's, you know, God's power infuses us accomplishing that. Uh, and that's just the beginning, isn't it, in the evangelical theology. There's also, you know, we, we have that and we have the desire then, the desire to honor God in our hearts. But as Paul says, it's still at war, right, with the old nature. Uh, you know, uh, I find this law to be at work. I do the things I don't want to do, right? That whole section, you know, miserable man that I am, who's going to deliver me? Christ, Christ delivers us. And that's the, the progressive alteration of our condition that, that's going on is the process called sanctification in evangelical theology where we've been made like Christ into his image. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Look to him. He's the one who accomplishes it. It's, it's his power that accomplishes it. Um, and sanctification finally comes to completion after we, you know, after we've lived this life and after we die and, and, and go to be with the Lord. We finally are perfected um, by God, and this is this is called glorification. Um, and um, you know the, the the way that we maintain faith, maintain commitment is uh, that process is called perseverance, and it comes from where? From our strength. It comes from God's grace, doesn't it? God's grace at work in us. 
So, uh, you know, that's the, that's the nature of, of true evangelical theology standing against these other, uh, other false ideas that we talk about. And these ideas are around. They're around everywhere. Uh, the means of salvation, uh, the means of grace, the Word of God, right? When it's preached, when it's read, God's Spirit is acting um, and uh, presenting us the salvation that's found in Christ. And faith is the means of accepting it. And as I listed a couple of scriptures there, that scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, is the one that says that it's not by our strength, uh, but by by God's grace that this happens. That's an important one. And I, I want to just share one thing with you real quickly about that one. Because there's sometimes a lot of debate about how to read that verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, um, which says... Uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. People have debated, what does this mean? Is it saying that, that this salvation is the gift of God? Is it saying... Uh, that, you know, and, and our responsibility is to generate faith into it? Or is it saying this faith is the gift of God? The answer is actually they are pretty plainly in the original Greek. There's a construction in Greek, and it's, you know, it's one of the things that's just lost in translation. A lot of languages, words have genders, right? Masculine, feminine, or neuter. And uh, I, I took Latin in school, and Latin's that way. Latin has the, the words have genders, and you can tell what word is modifying what other word by matching the gender, things like that. There's a construction in Greek where if you have multiple subjects and you want the modifier to apply to all of them, okay, you put the modifier in the neuter gender, and that's what's going on here. The the word this in the original Greek is in neuter. So it applies to all that stuff before. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, referring both both to the salvation and to the faith, is the gift of God. So it's actually very clear in the original Greek that both are the gift of God, uh, that we are, are saved uh, by God, and that's God's gift, but that the faith with which we believe is God's gift too, that God gives us that. And uh, so I just want to point that out. I, I think that's kind of neat to know because you'll hear people argue about that from time to time. What does that mean? It's not scriptural that we create and generate faith. It's scriptural that God gives it um, as a gift to us. And we're past time, so we'll go ahead and, and uh, stop there. But I appreciate everybody being here tonight. And uh, I guess we will uh, we'll just have a quick word of prayer and then, then dismiss to, to Hardy's. Father, we are grateful that you work our salvation, Father. We know that, that it is your, your whole process, Father. You know beforehand, and uh, knowing beforehand, you make our salvation secure, as Scripture tells us. And, and we thank you for that, Father. We thank you for the unending process of your sanctification, um, and, and we, we pray for that continuing process in us to become more Father, the image of Christ, and to be useful vessels for your gospel. We pray you will help us to be grounded in the truth of your salvation so that we can share that that actual truth and not 
uh, fall prey to misleadings of, of false doctrine. And Father, we just ask for, for a heart in our church that wants to be your church and wants to honor you and wants to be a vessel for your gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.